Hello guys, I'm Carlos Sainz and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, it's TC here with another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. The 2018 season may be winding down, but the great guests keep coming and this week's is a young Spanish hot shoe. A guy who until now has been Spain's second most famous racing driver. But that'll change when Fernando Alonso retires at the end of 2018. I'm talking, of course, about Carlos Sainz. As well as having raw speed, he's a man who knows how to deal with pressure because he's had it all his racing life, having been born with one of the most famous surnames in motorsport. He's the son of two-time World Rally champion Carlos Sainz. Carlos Jr. already has four impressive F1 seasons behind him. And in that time, he's experienced a lot. He had Max Verstappen as his first teammate, whom he outqualified more often than not in 2015. And he switched teams several times, having arrived in F1 via the Red Bull Young Driver program. We caught up over the Brazilian Grand Prix weekend, where he regaled me with fabulous anecdotes and a backstory unlike anyone else's on the grid. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Carlos, welcome to Be On The Grid. Thank you for your time. Um, you're sat opposite me in this crazy city of Sao Paulo, just before the Brazilian Grand Prix. You're in yellow, not for much longer. I'm in yellow, yeah, <laughs> so far. <laughs> I've got a yellow suitcase, but that's as far as it goes for me. But um, not for much longer. It's all coming to an end quite soon. Yeah, not for much longer. It's going to be three more weeks as yellow. And yeah. Looking forward to enjoy these last few races, these last few weeks with them, because I'm definitely wanting always to finish on a high with them. How do you reflect on your just over a year with the team? I think it's been quite interesting for me. I, we started off with a very strong result back in Austin more than a year ago now. And I would say since then, I've learned a lot. I've been part of this team that is going on, on a steep learning curve and also on a steep... Uh, progression no and and I felt also myself you know I've done that that kind of progression through the year no from the Carlos Sainz of the beginning of the year to the Carlos Sainz of now that is scoring a lot more points and doing a, a better job on Sundays is is also a good progress but you've been very good I think all season particularly qualifying was it 11 of the first 12 races Q3 yeah through? the statistics are I think are pretty good and um and I'm pleased about them but I always want more you know, at the beginning, even if I was doing a lot of Q3s, when it came to extracting the, those last two tenths of the car, uh, I, I still didn't know how to do them. You know, and, and I since Barcelona, Monaco, I found a thing on the setup and on my comfort inside the car that since then it has allowed me to, to perform at a much higher level. And of course, McLaren beckons. McLaren, yeah. Your uh, third different team in as many years. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does that help your development? I think it helps me in the long term to go through the so many different teams in such a short period of time. In the short term, I'm a strong believer that you definitely need at least two years in the same team to extract the absolute maximum of the package, to get to learn the tricks of the car, the setup of the car, to suit it to yourself, to get to know the engineers, to get the whole team around you to work as one, I think you need a bit more time than just a year like I had. And I think the best example is my three-year period in Toro Rosso. From the first year in Toro Rosso in 2015 to the Carlos Sainz of Singapore 2017 that I finished before, there was a huge progress there and a huge team building and, and I enjoyed it a lot. Why could the Carlos Sainz of 2015 not have delivered that P4 in Singapore two years later? Well, I was capable of delivering very strong things, very strong flashes of performance, no? Um, but ultimately, I think experience in Formula One is extremely important and getting to know the race strategy, as I said, the right balance of the car for yourself, both in qualifying and race day. It involves a lot of learning, a lot of experience, a lot of getting it wrong sometimes and then putting it together. So at McLaren, age 24, you're going to be a team leader. I'm age 24, just turned 24 in September, but it's, my, it's going to be my fifth year in Formula One. So I feel 
very strange, you know, to say that I'm, it's my fifth year at the age of 24, you know, but I think that's a, an advantage, if anything, you know, to, for a team like McLaren to have a young, motivated guy willing to push hard, but at the same time young, you know, I think it's a good compromise. And I think I, I have a good compromise between all those things. And do you feel ready to be the eyes and ears of the team? As I say, that team leader. Yeah, born ready, as you say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, for me, it's a dream country to drive for a team like McLaren. And to all of a sudden know that, I, especially at the beginning of the year, I'm going to have that, that leadership, that guidance on the team um, that I'm really looking forward to. Also, I'm looking forward to my first two-year contract with the team because maybe you guys don't know, but up until now, every year has been a bit of a one-year deal for me, both with Toroso and Renault. And finally, I'm in a bit more mid-term to long-term project with McLaren that I'm looking forward to to help as much as I can to to bring McLaren to all those positions that we know they were capable of doing. Have you been to the MTC yet? I have been to the MTC. Amazing. I visited for my first time um, a few weeks ago, but just as a presentation and just to see it. You know, I haven't have had that chance to meet the engineers and start talking about next year's car yet, but um, I've met the management and I've come to visit the place for a first time. It's a pretty amazing place, isn't it? It's unbelievable. I mean, the first time I went there and I saw it, the first thing that came to my mind was how these guys cannot be winning, you know? And I, I told it to, to Zach and, and company, everyone there, I said, how you guys with all this, you cannot be winning, you know? And uh, um, that's why I'm a strong believer that McLaren in the near future is gonna make it back. Why do you think they're not winning? Well, there might be many reasons for that. It might be the direction they've taken with the with the car in the in the last few years. Uh, you know, at the moment to beat a team like Mercedes and Ferrari that they have the whole package, it's extremely difficult. And everyone that is not Mercedes or Ferrari are struggling at the beginning because everyone is miles away. And um, McLaren is one of those teams, but I'm fully convinced that if we take the right route together, there is people capable of of delivering um, a car enough to fight for for podiums and wins in the not so near future, but in the midterm. In the fluctuating fortunes of a Grand Prix team, do you feel that they've hit the bottom of the trough and they can only there's only one way for them to go and that's better? More than hitting rock bottom, that is an expression that I don't like using. I think it's it's a year that they've realized they they had to change a few things, and the first thing that they've done is to reshuffle a, a lot the team. You know, they've got some new people, but at the same time, they've restructured themselves and they're willing to, to do that to, to become a better team in the future. So um, I back that and I am a strong believer, as I said, that this team knows how to make it back. And do you think James Key, who you, the new technical director there, not quite sure when he's starting because there's still a bit of an argument going on between McLaren and Toro Rosso, but you've worked with him before. What do you think he will bring to McLaren? Well, yeah, I have a very good relationship with, with James from Toro Rosso and um, I'm looking forward to work with him. I don't think he will have much of an effect on next year's car, so in 2019, but uh, he will definitely have a, a chance to, to help the team from, from then onwards, you know, from 2019 onwards. And uh, yeah, I think it's just good news. I remember the, the car he did in 2015, that Toros of 2015, that um, was really, really fast in high-speed corners. We were nearly up with Mercedes in, in downforce and, and Max and me could enjoy a very good rookie season. Um, give us an exclusive. Do you know when he's starting? No, I cannot give you any <laughs> exclusive. Don't put me in that situation. But I can tell you um, he will join the team in, in the future and... Yeah, all that. That's it. I cannot tell that's you. it. Let's move on. Well, look, Carlos Sainz. Let's just talk about you for a second now. Um, was it inevitable that you were going to be a racing driver? Uh, it wasn't inevitable, but uh, at the end, destiny is destiny, and uh, yeah, I ended up being a racing driver. <laughs> that's it. You know, uh, apparently, oh, we- apparently, when I was two years old. Um, my dad was rallying all the time. And when um, he came back from rallying, he saw me on a little battery car uh, doing a lot of um, 
how do you call it, the Scandinavian flick, entering some corners and doing a lot of donuts. And he was asking, who the hell has taught this guy to do that? And no one has taught me, but I had it in my blood and eventually I, I ended up being a racing driver. I mean, we should explain for people who don't know, your dad is double world champion Carlos Sainz. Um, it was imaginative on the name, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> he, he really went for... <laughs> for the extra pressure of calling me Carlos Sainz, he really don't yeah. didn't thought about it twice. But um, why racing and not rallying? Because obviously he's a hugely successful rally driver and you can do the Scandinavian flick age two. Yeah. Why, why racing? Because it's very simple. Um, at my time, uh, when I was three, four, five years old, he had an indoor go-karting. So I loved go-karting. I always went there and... and, uh, and um, at home in Madrid. At home in Madrid, correct. And I was enjoying it a lot. And then when I turned nine, ten years old, there was starting to be the Spaniard called Fernando Alonso, starting to winning races in, in Formula One. And I would woke up him every morning for the Australian Grand Prix, all those races in the in the Far East. Tell him, let's let's go and watch the race. Let's, it's it's four a.m. We should wake up. It's uh, the start of the Australian Grand Prix. Let's go and watch it. Started winning. He won the World Championship in 2005. I met him in 2005 in the Spanish Grand Prix in Barcelona. And when I met him, I went back home and I told my dad, Dad, I want to be like Fernando Alonso one day. That's it. And that is it. So he was the inspiration behind it. And of course, you're replacing him at McLaren next year. Has he given you any advice about what to um, expect, how to get the most out of the team? Not yet. We're still rivals in F1, but then... As soon as uh, I get a chance next year, I will start having a, a good conversation with him about, the, about McLaren and uh, about what to expect from him. So what about carrying the Saints name and the pressure that came with that? I mean, did your rivals in karting, were yes. there any sort of playground chat that was mm. annoying or it was did it weird. bring pressure? It was strange because, you know, at the beginning in, in karting when I was 11 years old, 12 years old, uh, you, know, you know kids, and kids sometimes can be a bit mean, no, in a way. And uh, and racing fathers are, so, are also quite tough. And I remember going karting and always having that extra pressure, that extra father looking at my lap times and the kids wanting to beat me, trying to beat the son of Carlos Sainz because they thought that maybe that would make them even more special, you know, and... I perfectly understand. I probably would have done the same if I would race against the son of Ayrton Senna, just as an example. But it did make it quite tough, knowing that everyone wanted to beat me more than anyone else and uh, that I had more stopwatches on the go-kart track trying to get my lap times and, and see what I was capable of doing. But were there any advantages that came with the name as well? Whether it was, was there a bit of red carpet treatment that others didn't get? Of course, there's some advantages. The first advantage is to have the advice of a double world champion. That's something I would never uh, take away from myself, you know, to always have had the opportunity to chat, to, yeah, to conversate, to have the advice of a double world champion. Doesn't matter if it's tennis, badminton or rallying, you know, a world champion is a world champion. You must be a very special character. And you need to have the attitude and the talent to do so. And to have that from my dad was always very special. Do you share many character traits with him? Uh, actually, we both think that not that many. We have a very similar ways. At the end, I've been educated by him no, in a racing manner. And I have a very similar approach to him to being really methodical and really a pain with the engineers, with the setup, always trying to find the last tenth. But character-wise, I'm actually, I think, a bit more similar to my mom, a bit more laid back, a bit less, yeah, a bit more laid back, a bit more cold in that sense. He used to be probably a bit more Latin than me from what I've heard and from what he has told me. Is he or was he competitive with you when you were growing up? I mean, uh, there's a story and tell me if it's true that you went ice driving with him when you were 15. Yes. <laughs> Go and tell that story. <laughs> okay, that story. We went to, uh, I think it was... Sweden or Norway? Now I don't remember. But one of these two countries, uh, I think it was Sweden. And um, we we ended up doing a course with Porsche from 1990s, an ice driving course. What's and that like? 
engine in the bag. Engine in the bag, rear wheel drive. <laughs> fun. Uh, really good fun. And we went through non-studded tires, little studded tires, big studded tires. By the end, when we got the big studded tires where it's really, really grippy, there was a truck, a three kilometer truck, and I was always driving. You know, he was having his coffees, trying to teach me. But by the end of the day, I really got really fast and I was getting his lap times and my lap times. And I realized that I've got really, really close to him. I actually, we went for a qualifying lap and I was like a tenth or two away from him and he got really angry. And you were how old? I was 15 years old and yeah, driving in the ice, which so is not my speciality really. <laughs> so but how did dad deal with that? I was having a lot of fun and he could see that I was getting closer and he was laughing but you know with that kind of love that uh, this little bastard what is he doing you know <laughs> he's getting a bit too close to me he's he has his pride also and um he said okay now this exact same truck we're gonna turn it around and with the up anti-clockwise and uh, you don't have one lap to recognize to do a recognition lap we go straight away this is what rally is about he gave me four seconds on that lap and I went back to reality. <laughs> so yeah, my go-karting of learning the track had worked on the clockwise so, way, but as soon as we turned it around, it was... So he is competitive with you. And does that translate into everything? I mean, like, do you play other sports with him? Do you play tennis with him? Do you... You cannot imagine. <laughs> it is really that, that way. So now we, I don't know why, but we are very quite into golf and we are really competitive on a golf course. What's your handicap? Uh, my handicap is uh, 10 and a half huh? and uh, mm -hmm. he's in 13 and a half but we started both at 18 you know 18 handicap and we both got it low 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 the, over the last two years and he's really good at squash I've never been able to beat him at squash he was Spanish champion we played some tennis when we go skiing on the slopes not anymore but we used to be quite competitive uh, many many other sports paddle I mean, anything you can ask me, any sport, even football. I was organizing matches and he was part of the team, sometimes against me. Ah, I can have too many examples of competitiveness between him and me. What about your sisters? Blanca My sisters. Anna, do, they, do they join in or is it very <laughs> much a, a male thing? No, it's, it's pretty much a male thing. We, we do spend time with our sisters. It's not all about me and my father, but yeah, it's... Uh, they don't get too much into sport. My sister Blanca, when I was, I've always been 15 months younger than her. She is very talented with sports and she was always older and bigger than me. So she was always giving me a hard time, uh, but not anymore. Like she, she doesn't really care too much about sports anymore. But are they in, just out of it, are the girls involved in racing in any way? Nothing, nothing. They, one is in charge of a, uh, gym in, in Spain, back in Madrid. The other one is still studying. Anita is still studying. And they are not into racing at all. They like coming into good races like Abu Dhabi or Bahrain where there's the sun, but the, they don't really care so much about racing. It's put it like that. So I, I'm loving the whole relationship you have with your dad. Now, dads worry about their children. I have kids. I can relate to that. But your dad is still competing. He won the Dakar just earlier this year. Do you worry about your dad when he's competing? A bit too much. <laughs> yeah, I would say a bit too much. I, I suffered this year when he won the Dakar. You cannot imagine how nervous I was. And I was calling him every day just to, to t talk to him about how was his stage, but especially about the next one. So tomorrow, what are you going to do? Are you going to attack? Careful with the punctures. You're leading by one hour. Just be careful. Just make it to the finish. Just don't get nervous. And I suddenly realized, and he told me, yeah, hey, you're sounding like me when you were in your first year of Formula One. Just let me do my thing. But at the same time, he wanted to have my advice. And I always want, want to have his advice when I'm racing. So uh, it was very funny for the first time. I realized I had become a bit of him, you know, I had been copying him. I've heard of racing dads, but I haven't heard of racing sons before like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird thing, no, that I'm yeah. 24, he's 56, he's still winning and he's still performing at the highest level. I'm a strong believer that if you give him a World Rally car right now, he would still finish in a podium. So it's, 
It's uh, strange. Do you, do you really think that? Has he ever been tempted just to? No. I mean, Sebastian Loeb did a rally recently, didn't he? Went straight in and won. Exactly. Imagine um, if Dad did that. I don't want to be too, too proud, though. No, yeah. my dad, but I know that my dad has been in rally stages in the Dakar, being faster than Loeb, you know, recently. So that puts him on a great value. And I think even Loeb, not long ago when he arrived to the Dakar, said, wow, this guy is still pushing me more than I <laughs> expected me. How, how is your Scandinavian flick these days? Are we ever going to see you do a rally? It's really good. I don't want to get too, too proud, but it's, it's getting better every time. We have a rally car back in Spain that I tend to use whenever we have a chance. And uh, I keep practicing, I keep getting better, I keep having my dad as a co-driver, although he doesn't like it anymore because I think he thinks I'm getting a bit too fast. But uh, we still do the... We actually did something with Mark Weber and, and DC not, not long ago, so you can go to the internet and... And check it out. It is good, actually. I've seen that. But let's talk about your racing career. Um, hugely successful in karting. How difficult was it to make the transition into single-seaters? Uh, it's always difficult, that transition. You always uh, believe a lot in yourself at that stage. You know, you're very young, so you think it's going to be easy. But, uh, yeah, it it was key, you know, for my future, that transition. I, I had to work hard. I had to to be fast straight away because my very first test in a single seater were um, for our Red Bull trial to join the Red Bull Junior program and to join also a BMW scholarship. So uh, immediately- No my, pressure. No pressure. <laughs> so I did this test with uh, Daniel Kvyat to join the Red Bull uh, program. Um, and at that stage we were both picked for the Red Bull program and then straight from there we went to I went to Helmut Marko and said okay now I am a junior driver do you still want me to do the BMW scholarship and he told me yeah of course go and and go and win it and uh, the moment he told me okay go and win it it was like even more pressure it was the first thing Helmut Marko had told me to do and I hadn't even been there in the program for a week and uh, I managed to to get it so I had at the same time, the same year, the BMW and the, and the junior backing, Red Bull junior backing. So it was a very successful transition. And from there on, I, I started my, my single-seater career. Now, is there a story that Maria de Velotta was somehow involved in that transition? Yes, that's where probably my relationship with Maria comes, you know, and why do I still wear the star of Maria de Villota in my helmet, in all my helmet designs? Uh, before going to the Red Bull trial, I uh, decided to do this test back in Spain in the Hanama with a very small single-seater that they had there. And Maria was my driving coach. And I did my first ever laps on a single-seater just behind him, behind her. He was showing me the lines around the Jarama. She was showing me how to do the the um, the blip, you know, and the downshifts. and Heel and toe. The heel and toe, exactly. Was this a sort of Formula Ford? Yes, Tight. kind of, a bit bigger. It had wings. Mm -hmm. And um, so I learned the basics there and it went well because then I went to the Red Bull thing and, and caught it. No? And uh, I will, I'll always remember that day. It was probably one of my most special days, the first day that you try a single-seater. I was still 14 years old, something like that. So um, that's part of my career that I will never forget. What kind of a teacher was she? Patient? And what kind of a student were you? Extremely patient, extremely nice. Maria, if you guys know her, she was always with a smile in, in her face and always positive. I don't know how well I did. Apparently she says I did well, but she was extremely positive and, and supportive. What did her death following her testing accident, how, how did that affect your attitude to danger in racing and in life? Um, my attitude didn't change at all because I th really thought that what happened to her was a really freak accident, like something that can happen one in a million times. I still think she was extremely unlucky. So it didn't affect me much in that sense, in the racing sense. But personally, it did affect me because I lost a friend. And, uh, but not only a friend, but the whole family, the Villota, has been very close to my family always. 
and um, and yeah, to see a father lose her daughter, and um, a Emilio, that is Maria's brother, has been my engineer in some Formula Three races, so a big friend of mine also was extremely tough. But since then, I was named the one of the ambassadors of the legacy of Maria, and I've been trying to help and trying to to keep her legacy. You know, that always was trying to help, trying to have a smile on the face and and um, enjoy life as much as you could. It's a lovely thing that you keep the, the star on your helmet. And will that stay with you throughout your career? Forever. I have uh, things that will stay on my helmet, the star of Maria, a little chili that I always wear because of my friends that call me chili. Come on, why do they call you chili? Ah, it's, it's not because you're cold, is it? You know, I'm going to try and be honest. <laughs> uh, probably it was on a night out that my friends got drunk and they always called me Charlie. So from Charlie... Carlos, Charlie, Charlie, Chile. So these, uh, <laughs> as they got more, drank more and more and more. Yeah. Are these English friends or? No, no, Spanish. Spanish also. Wanted to, to call you Charlie. Uh, I don't know, because we went to an English school. So probably because of that, they knew the name Charlie from, from teachers or whatever. Oh, English school in Madrid? Yeah, English in, school in Madrid. British Council school. school. That's an in interesting decision by your parents intelligent decision i bet because english nowadays is part of i mean in f1 without english you you're going nowhere no so, so the first language of the school was, was english. english i was actually seven hours eight hours at school out of those eight hours seven were in english so i only have had one lesson of spanish a day amazing yeah no i i i'm how, how thankful many years? for it how many years did you I do was for, since I was three until I got to eighteen. Oh, I wow. finished school, got my university, be able to go to university, and and I didn't ended up going to university. But I did my. Why didn't you go to university? Uh, because my dad told me <laughs> you need to finish school, but he what didn't talk about the uni university. So it was already tough to finish school uh, with the amount of go karting and uh, the amount of races that I had to do back in the day. I was losing a lot of school and I was still didn't lose a year and I was still getting getting to pass every single every single thing but it was extremely tough trust me it was probably one of the toughest things I had to do when I was younger but had you gone to university what would you have read I've never considered it so I have no idea I'm asking you now to consider it so if you ask me now to consider it <laughs> I would say business administration because I like I've started a few businesses. I like businesses, but it's not something. It was not even in my mind. I was so focused on finishing the bloody school to <laughs> to get to go racing properly and stop studying in airplanes and in hotels. That I hats off to you because a lot of guys in your position didn't finish school, didn't get their exams. Yeah, it's not. It's, that's why I said it's not easy, no, because. The normal thing back in the day when I was 14, 15 years old is to see a lot of go-karters arriving to a track on Monday and doing all this Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday free practice and then getting to the official free practice on Friday. And I was getting there on Friday midday. You know, I was just doing the whole day at school and then getting on Friday and still in European championships, world championships, you had this competitive 100 guys, you know, going for the world championship. And I would say more than half of them didn't didn't study at all, which I don't complain, but it was just different, you know, different philosophy for me to to them. And one that you're happy with? One that I'm didn't now, yes. Yeah. At the moment, I was really frustrated with my dad because I said, look, if I would be here one, two days earlier, we could maybe even be better than we are now and we could test more engines and test more things and test more setups. But he said, no, no you're still good enough to win by getting here on a Friday and you need to finish school because you never know what can happen with you in the future. Now, I think it's time for another anecdote. Um, there are a few pivotal moments in a driver's, in, in a person's life, actually. We've, um, I think you meeting Maria was obviously one, uh, meeting Fernando Alonso another, and another one, 2011, you've just started racing, single-seaters. Your dad is invited to Austria by Red Bull to do a PR thing with a lot of other 
Uh, big yeah. racing yeah, drivers. No, no. Kimi Raikkonen's there. Sebastian Loeb rally driver's there. I think Mark Webber, the Formula One driver, was there. Yeah. Off DC. DC with David Coulthard was there. Uh, Alex uh, Worth. Yeah, yeah, Alex Worth. Now, you did rather well, didn't you? Can you tell us that story? It was a very And how old were you one. in 2011? I was... Uh, 16 right 16 years old uh just pretty much after the, the the sweden thing we went to this red bull ring event it was a pr thing they were filming all these drivers uh, rallying also trying a motorbikes and then the last thing was uh, an expo race and um, i was there just to to watch and to meet mark and to meet kimi i was there just going with my dad on his hand just to to meet all these people and try to spend some time with them and uh, all of a sudden, Thomas Uberal, that is the Red Bull Motorsport boss, uh, he says, Carlos, you, you're racing. Why don't you race this expo race with them? And it was, you can imagine, these seven champions and suddenly a 16-year-old kid. I remember the starting grid was decided by luck by picking up a number. And I was picked number five. And I was really nervous, really shy. I didn't know what, how to act with, with all these people there. And... Um, so we are in the grid with a KTM Expo. You've probably seen it in the in the Race of Champions and in the Red Bull Ring. And suddenly, one lap into the race, it starts raining like well, cats and dogs there. And um, suddenly, I find myself in the lead after five laps or something like that with Kimi and Sebastian Loeb. And I'm driving, and I cannot believe that I'm driving on the wet uh, together with these two guys and we go into the final lap group race uh, it was so wet that we were just missing every breaking point going wide coming back it was crazy race suddenly uh, Sebastian does a half spin I am along with Kimi going into the last uh, lap and uh, I somehow managed to beat him and, and when I finished the race suddenly I remember Kimi Sebastian coming to me oh, what are you racing on huh? Formula Renault Good job, good job. It was probably the best day of my life until then. <laughs> Even better than beating, nearly beating my dad on a, on a rally car. That's just a great story, isn't it? And I imagine Helmut Marco would have enjoyed that. I don't know. I, I really hope uh, Thomas Uberal told him about that. I'm sure he did. I, I didn't. Yes, I was very shy and I didn't want to, to talk about you, it or show You've got to tell me something about Helmut Marco. Does he own a sense of humor? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, he owns a sense of humor, a very particular sense of humor, a sense of humor that I've been learning how to extract all these years. And nowadays I get on, I've always got on well with him, but nowadays I know how to share a joke with him. And it's taken me some time to, to know how to, but yeah. now I, I actually, whenever I go and have breakfast with him sometimes in the Red Bull hospitality or something, I... I manage it. I manage it. Okay. It, it took me some time. It took me some time. <laughs> now, it's an interesting thing, actually, that story about beating Kimi and Loeb and things I in the way. I don't like to say I beat them. I just I'm want saying to that. say that I I'm was competitive. That. With... I'm saying that. Because what is interesting is that it was raining. You've always been really good in the rain. Because it, when you were racing British Formula 3 in 2012, all your wins were in the rain. Yeah. Which what is... is that? How did you learn to be so good in the wet? I think or is it that Scandinavian flick again? No, I think that is thanks to my dad. I think that is thanks to the, the importance he gave to the wet. I th I'm sure back in the 90s when everyone saw Senna win so many races in the wet, he was part of, of the audience. No? And he told me, when I started karting, he told me, Carlos, every time the track is wet, you're going to go out there and, and handle it. I don't mind how wet it is. Even if you go out on slicks, you need to learn how to drive in these conditions because these conditions is where the grades are, are recognized. I say, okay, so since karting, I always went out on the rain. I always battled myself out in the rain. That gave me probably an extra feeling, an extra um, learning. I don't know how to call it. That when it came to single-seaters and it started raining, I pretty much, yes, whenever it rained, I, I managed to always score strong results. Yeah. Even in British Formula 3, with all the British drivers <laughs> yeah, that knew the true. tracks on the wet, I somehow arrived and, yeah. and won pretty much every race. You did, you did. Now, you mentioned Daniel Kafir earlier on, and you lived with him. Nearly. We were neighbours. Oh, thought, in Milton Keynes. I thought you lived yeah. with each other. Uh, we were pretty much neighbours. I was neighbours with him. 
and he was living with Antonio Felix da Costa. Right. So, uh, yeah, we were all living there, all part of the junior program. Antonio was doing all series. We were both doing GP3. It was quite a tough year for me. Didn't really enjoy that one. But um, Was that living in Milton Keynes? Yeah. The whole year in general. <laughs> so it was just a bit of a... Big love to everyone in Milton Keynes, yeah, by the way. Big, <laughs> but, you know, for a Spaniard, 17, 18 years old, we are a very different culture to you guys. We are very, you know, at, at some Spanish guys, until they are 30, they don't leave their homes just because they like being with their parents. We, we're just different, you know. We, we have that familiar thing going on very, very, very particular. Were you homesick when you were living in England? And I was alone living and um, I left home when I was 18. I was probably a tough moment because it was also a very tough year for me in GP3 and it was probably not the, not the best year of my life, but uh, a year that I remember, I think it made me a, a much stronger person, I would say. Why? Because uh, that year... I wasn't doing such a bad year, but the last three races were won by Kvyat, and I had a, a really bad run of bad luck on those last three races. Kvyat got promoted to Formula One, and um, I was left with nothing. No, all of a sudden, living in Milton Keynes with not much to do, and after losing a championship that could have given me, given me the passport to Formula One. So, was there a moment when you thought it was all over, or mm, nearly? Nearly. I was lucky that year to do the Formula One test in, with Red Bull and perform quite well. <laughs> but uh, that probably quite saved well. Me. Sorry to interrupt, but quite well because I've spoken to engineers about that. And Vettel got in the car after you and barely went any quicker. Yes, uh, that's more or less like that. Yeah. Well, I don't like speaking too much about these things, but they make me a bit shy. I don't know why, but it was a. Uh, a young driver test. I did the the afternoon with Toro Rosso to give a first feeling. I think I was P2 that day with the Toro Rosso. And then uh, I did the morning with Red Bull. Uh, I did a couple of sets of new tires towards the end of the morning after doing a lot of aero stuff. And I finished the day and said, oh, it felt like a good lap. You know, it felt like I had done a, a good job. And then it was Sebastian stepping into the garage right after me jumping in that exact same car with the same tires and similar run plan. And I was really nervous because I knew I had done a decent lap, but I said, oh, he's not going to destroy me and I'm going to look so bad, you know. He was, it's that famous year that he won the last nine races consecutively or something like that. And uh, yeah, all of a sudden he finishes the day. I saw he went the half a tenth quicker than me on the, on the same compound or something like that. I don't remember. And I remember him getting into the engineer's room, shaking my hand and telling, you've done a really good job and a really good lap time, by the way. And he told also the engineers, you know, in front of everyone. And I was like shocked the moment he said that. And, uh, and I was yeah, saying, well, it was huge respect to this guy because to come and say that without having to, you know, he could have left home and without saying absolutely anything. But he shook my hand, said, well, what you did this morning looks, looks to be really good. And um, and he told everyone there in the team. So he seems to be a very human guy, doesn't he? Very approachable, very modest. Would you agree with that description? I've always had huge respect for Seb. First of all, because of that moment, that's probably what gave me the first initial feeling that he's really a top top bloke. And second, because you can see him always smiling in the paddock, always getting to know the names of everyone, always. He has always a moment to have a conversation with you, always a question about yourself, about your family, about whatever. And that you don't see that often, that on the paddock. And um, it is a four-time world champion. <laughs> that's that's also the another important fact. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Now, so you, you have that test, it goes well. And do you feel that saved the relationship with Red Bull? On a way, yes, because the year of GP3 was definitely not not good enough for Red Bull standards to maybe do another year with the junior program. You know, they were very strict at that time, but definitely a test was a good showing. Um, I also did a few races in World Series, one of them in Monaco that I did really well with no experience. I had really big flashes of performance, but 
no consistency that year. And um, yeah, that's probably what gave me the chance to do a one last year all out in World Series in 2014, win or die, you know. Or, uh, it, was that the message from Helmut Mark? Yep. You got to, you got to win this championship or you, you're out. Pretty much. Well, thank God you did. Thank God I did. <laughs> it didn't start at all very well. And I did start the year with a pole position, but the engine didn't start in front pole. The engine simply didn't start. Don't ask me why. That first race, and imagine, already 25 points on the bin. Then the next day I turned up, pole position and won, and then I started leading the championship and, and led until the end of the year with some highs and lows, but the, with a, a very strong year, probably a huge turnaround from 2013. I learned so much that year. I became a new Carlos Sainz, a lot more professional, a lot more committed, a lot more focused, a lot more consistent. And yeah, that gave me the passport then to Formula One. How can you be more committed and more focused? Because I'm assuming in 2013, you thought you were committed and focused. So how do you make that next step? Exactly. that. I thought I was committed and focused, <laughs> but I had a conversation with Helmut. I had a conversation with my dad. I realized how much potential I had, but also how bad I was using it in a way that with the talent that I had at that stage, with working a bit harder, being a bit more focused, spending a bit more time with the team that I was competing with, I could just become a much better driver. And that year I did it with Tams. They helped me a lot on that way to develop as a driver. I still have really good friends there and suddenly beat the record of wins in World Series, seven in a year, pole positions, everything. No, I became, and suddenly I found a new me in myself that gave me so much confidence going into Formula One next year. When did Red Bull tell you that you had the Toro Rosso drive for 2015? Because Max Verstappen was confirmed for that year quite early. It was, he was confirmed a bit too early for my liking, yeah. <laughs> because all of a sudden I was winning World Series and uh, I thought I was going to get one of the drives in the Toro Rosso because that's pretty much what Helmut had told me if I won. And suddenly Max was announced in the summer. And just when Max was announced, I had a difficult race in Budapest and my lead in the championship shrunk. Do, do you think those two were were related? Maybe. You, you yeah. hear the bad news about Max and, and it affected your performance? Maybe. I will never know. I prefer not to <laughs> okay. not to think about okay. it, but maybe a bit. Yeah. The the thing is that my lead in the championship was smaller and I had to go to Paul Ricard. Thank God in Paul Ricard I did the best weekend of my life, won both races, and I went the into the final race 49 points ahead with 50 to play. So pretty much championship sealed. And even if I won the championship, that by the way, when I won the championship, I was feeling completely destroyed because I had a really food poisoning, like really strange when I won the championship and uh, I had a really bad day, but I, I still didn't have the Formula One drive confirmed. So on a way I, I won the championship, but I was like, yeah, whatever, you know. So were you worried that with Max confirmed, they were going to do what they'd always done, which was to have one experienced guy and one new guy. So therefore you thought there was no longer an opening at Toro for 2015? Yes, because at the same time, I remember there was Franz Tost and, and Helmut talking about Jan-Eric Verne, wanting to keep Jan-Eric Verne. No, the rumor was we're going to keep Max, which is extremely young, and uh, Jan-Eric Verne as, as a bit of a reference, while Kvyat was stepping up to Red Bull. So I was, yeah, for moments, I was positive, but I was also knew that I was very frustrated. I said, well, if I won, if I've done the best year of my life, if I won so many races, what's what's happening with me? No, So it was a tough period of time, that one. You get the drive. I did get it. So you and Mac, in fact, you had a great debut. I did have a good debut, yeah. In, uh, in Melbourne, didn't you? But... Now, just tell us about the relationship with Max. Um, intense? That's one to of the big magic enigmas of the paddock. Everyone thinks me and Max hate each other. And that's absolutely not the case. I don't think I would have used that word. Many fans. Many fans, when I go to autograph signs or anything, they keep asking me about Max. And what's, 
the relationship. Even my friends keep asking me about Max and the relationship we had. And uh, we were we were having fun that year. I promise. We had a lot of fun out of the track. In the track, we we were extremely competitive. We knew we were battling for our careers, for our Formula One pedigree on our first year rookie season. And uh, I got on with him a lot better than than what people think. How much had your paths crossed prior to that in in the junior formulas? Nothing. I didn't Karting? even nothing. Nothing. He was so young that the, yeah. he was always two or three years below me, no, and uh, never never competed against him. So the first test we did in Barcelona, I don't know where it was, Jerez, Barcelona. It was the first time I've I had seen his 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 talent or how good he was. And was it obvious from the outset? Yes, yes. For me, Max is. There's no doubt that he's one of the most talented, if not the most talented guys that I've battled against in, in Formula One. So I really enjoyed that, that year because it also forced me to, to, to give another step, no? to take another step. I thought I was extremely good after 2014, after a year I did. And then I arrived to Formula One and I'm up against a young guy and uh, with a lot of talent. So it made me do another step, you know, of, of commitment, of, of professionalism, of, of talent, of, of everything, you know? So it made me a better driver. In the it, it was very close between you. When he got the nod to replace Kafir at, at Red Bull Racing, Spanish, Spanish Grand Prix of all yeah. places for yeah. in 2016, <laughs> how, mu <laughs> how much of a blow was that? It was a big blow. I always had in mind that Red Bull really wanted the Max Verstappen phenomenon not to, to go to Red Bull as soon as possible. And I always thought he obviously deserved it. But I also felt that I deserved it at the same time because I felt I was not getting outperformed or, or, uh, or beaten that often to be a very clear cut between him and me. But I very quickly forgot about it. I very quickly said, okay, whatever, let him get the Red Bull drive, he deserves it in a way, and I'll get my chance in the future. Just keep keep focus. And I remember that exact weekend, he won the race, but at the same time, I was starting ninth, and after lap one, I was P3 right behind him on a Toro Rosso. <laughs> and I really, that really felt good. I, I mean, Ricciardo was leading after lap one when the two Mercedes crashed, then it was Max, and then it was me. And I was, hey, here I am, Helmut, with the Toro Rosso, <laughs> still P3 behind Max, like in, like in the Toro Rosso days. So I'm, I'm going for it. <laughs> Is it true that you think that Max didn't want you as a teammate again? I don't know, but I would say no. I don't think drivers really have an effect on that. It is a very difficult question you could ask him, but I think as we got on well and and we we had a rivalry, of course, but I wouldn't think he wouldn't say he would go to Helmut or to Christian and say, no, I don't want Carlos. First of all, because the moment you say that, you 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 sound weak. You know, if you go to a team boss and say, I don't want him as a teammate, you already sound weak. And second, I don't think he, he really never really said that. Was it a, ever on the cards that you were going to replace Daniel Ricciardo? I think so, yeah. I think Red Bull considered it, of course. But I also well, Had know you already signed for McLaren at that point? No, no, it must no, have been no. I didn't, but I had it. I ha I had thought about it. I thought the most likely thing is that they end up getting Pierre, so I'm going to start looking for other options. What is true is that um, the moment I left Toroso to go to Renault, I knew I was losing chances to go to Red Bull. It was part of my decision, out of the decision of the thinking process of I don't want to do a fourth year with with Toroso. I want to go to Renault because Renault was interested in me at the time. And um, I know that if I go to Renault, if there is a space in Red Bull in a year, two time, I'm losing credits, you know, to go there because I'm abandoning the the family in a way. So, but in the end, it turned out, I'm convinced it turns out to be a, a good decision for myself. And I, I'm very happy to go, to have gone to Renault first and to have an opportunity to drive for McLaren next year. Hey, and the great thing about driving for McLaren is you get to live in Woking. I get to live in Woking. Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're not going to see you in Woking. No, you're going to see me a lot in Woking, especially the moment Abu Dhabi is over, I will switch my focus completely to to McLaren. 
I don't think I'm going to live in the UK, but you will see me a lot over there. You do buck the trend for drivers, though, in that you don't live in Monaco. You're in Madrid. And actually, you were in London for a while, weren't you? I was in London for a while, but um, in the end, I decided to move to Madrid. Don't ask me why, but as I said, What's that I enjoy Is it some... that family thing again that you were It's that family about? thing. It's that culture of mm. just when, when the race is over, the first thing that my brain wants is to disconnect. Not to disconnect, but to go back to my bed, my family, to my friends, also girlfriend, and spend time there. Play my golf with my dad, play <laughs> golf with my friends, train, good weather in Spain to train outdoors. Yeah. That's... How, how well do you know your future teammate, Lando Norris? I don't know him, to be honest. I uh, met him once, shook hands with him, but I don't really know much, much his personal side or... Or his hello, how are you going on thing. How was he when you met him? He's quite funny on social media. Did he, he, is, did, yeah. he cra- did he crack a gag or he is indeed uh, <laughs> funny. I've I've actually conversated in social media probably more than with him more than in person. So that's what why I don't know him well, but I'm sure we're gonna spend a lot of time together this winter. So yeah, yeah I will let you know in, in January in the test in Barcelona test how, how we got on in that December, January period. Well, Carlos, it's very exciting times ahead for you. Just, I suppose, just finally, if we sit down again in a year's time, um, we'll both be a year older. But what else do you think will have changed? How do you think you'll be reflecting on 2019? What do you hope to achieve as a driver in terms of your development and where you'd like to see McLaren? Well, I'll I'll be wearing orange instead of yellow, that's for (laughs) sure. And then, no, speaking seriously, I would love to to say next year, at the end of next year that McLaren has taken a, a step forward on performance, that the science has been a big part of, of that on helping the team to move forward. The final position, I don't know, but I really want to make sure there is a step forward from this year and the start of a new era for McLaren of going little by little back to the top. Well, look, best of luck with that. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Great. Carlos is both engaging and amusing, isn't he? Yet he has an innate confidence and wisdom that I think will stand him in good stead in the political cauldron that is the Formula One paddock. I loved his anecdotes, particularly the story about ice driving with his father in Sweden. Sounds like he got a bit of a lesson from the old maestro there. But thanks for your time, Carlos. It was great to chat. And thanks too to Renault. Well, that's it for another week, but of course, we'll be back soon with another F1 superstar. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Beyond the Grid and leave a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. And as I keep telling you, we love your feedback. And if you're new to the show, don't forget to check out our previous episodes. You'll find legends, young guns, team bosses, and more. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.